Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to... Uh, live in terms of it, to be built up, that you would uh, open the eyes of our understanding to understand this difficult passage, and uh, that you would be glorified in the responses of our heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. If passages could feel pain when they are being twisted, this one would be on morphine long ago. And that's because there is so much twisting of this. It's been used as a proof text to prove that you're not saved unless you speak in tongues. And there's other people who say, oh, no, it's not dealing with salvation. This is dealing with a second uh, work of grace that happens much later in your lives. There are others who take this and say, if you're not immersed by their pastor with the right formulas, uh, you have to get rebaptized. Now, there are Wesleyans who take this passage and say, well, what this is talking about is a second level in your life where you can get to the place where you no longer sin, sinless perfection. Now, that's a real stretch, but this is one of the passages that they use uh, to teach on that. Now, there are Reformed people who debate back and forth on what this passage means as well. There are some Reformed people who say, uh, well, the disciples of this chapter were not saved, Uh, They don't get saved until verse 6, and there are other Reformed people say, no way, they are clearly saved. And what's going on in verse 5 is not a re-baptism. This is talking about John the Baptist's baptism. And you look at the passage and you say, how in the world would they come up with uh, an interpretation like that? It's rather ingenious. They just extend the quotation marks from the end of verse 4 down to the end of verse 5, and they say, this is still... Paul speaking, and he's talking about what John the Baptist did many years before. He was baptizing people in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, most Reformed people have abandoned uh, that interpretation. They just recognize the Greek won't bear it. It just is not something that uh, really uh, follows through. But here are some other questions. Is this passage even talking about the baptism of the Spirit? And if so, is it a second work of grace? What are the evidences of that baptism of the Spirit? I don't know, I don't care which commentary you start reading, you're going to begin to realize this is a tough passage to deal with. There is confusion. Uh, Many commentaries say, you know, throw up their hands and say, well, we're not entirely sure what this means. Now, I say that up front uh, because uh, some of you may end up disagreeing with what uh, I'm saying, and that is perfectly okay. In my booklet on the back table, Uh, which is expansion on the previous thing, belief, liberty, and mutual respect. I can guarantee you this passage isn't anywhere near the center circles of uh, these uh, things on importance. But I didn't want to just skip over it. I was tempted at first. I was thinking, oh, boy, it's going to be a whole lot easier if I just skip this passage, go on to the next uh, section. 
but I knew you guys would be calling me cowards, so I, <laughs> I, uh, I've been working on it uh, really tar- uh, uh, hard. It's hard to find even two Reformed people who agree on this passage completely. So you can disagree with me, uh, no problems. But what I began to realize, you know, Luke put this in here for a purpose by God's inspiration. And I was trying to look for the reasons that God was putting it in here. And we're going to be seeing there's actually quite a number of reasons, a number of applications, not just at the end, but throughout the sermon uh, we're going to be bringing. But I think one, uh, one reason is that God deliberately introduces these messy situations that don't fit a paradigm so that we don't get legalistic and formulaic. Everybody's in trouble in this passage doesn't fit anybody's theological paradigm, except for mine, of course, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I struggled with this one too. Um, and I think God puts these things there so that we have the humility to let God be God and to work beyond our expectations. Now, I think you're going to see as we go through this passage, it really does fit consistently uh, with um, our theology, but... Uh, I really was tempted to skip over this, and hopefully by the end of this sermon, you're not going to wish I had skipped over it. Say, whew, you know, Phil, you should have skipped over that one. But just look at it as a fun exercise in detective work. We're going to be looking at hints that Luke is giving us, and hopefully by the end you're going to say, wow, there were enough hints here that we really uh, do uh, understand it. First hint. I think it's quite clear that Luke is trying to thematically connect this passage, which chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Got to remember that chapter divisions are not inspired. Uh, They were put into the Bible in 1236 A.D. by Cardinal Caro. Uh, They weren't in there before. And verse 1, the way it's worded, I think makes clear this is a continuation of a story. It's not finished. It says that it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, etc. You have to go back to chapter 18 to find out that Paul has just started his third missionary journey. You've got to go back to chapter 18 to figure out who is this Apollos guy and why was he at Ephesus and why did he go up to Corinth and what in the world has been going on in Ephesus anyway. And so... Uh, Many interpretations, I think, have gone awry because people have yanked this passage out of its context. So let's read it in context. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 18, beginning at verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ." Now, immediately, we see three parallels. Verse 25 says of Apollos, though he knew only the baptism of John. Then you look at chapter 19, verse 3, and you see the 12 disciples that Paul has been talking about, they knew only the baptism of John. What uh, Luke is doing as he's crafting this story is he's helping us to realize, okay, this whole section is talking about the relationship of John's baptism 
to Christian baptism. If you only emphasize chapter 18, you're going to say with the early reformers, okay, both baptisms are completely identical. If you emphasize only chapter 19, like some later reformed people uh, have done, they're going to say these are quite different baptisms, quite different. When you take both passages together, you come to a third conclusion. And I'm not going to tell you right now what that conclusion is. You're going to have to stay awake to, to figure this one out. Just suffice it to say, Luke wants us to see that these disciples are in the same boat as Apollos in the previous little section. Second, it's clear that both Apollos and the twelve disciples were lacking something in their Christianity. Chapter 18, verse 26, it's clear to Aquila and Priscilla that Apollos is a genuine believer. He's a powerful believer, in fact. But there is something that is qu not quite right about their Christian his Christianity. Verse 26, So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now you look at chapter 19, verse 4, you see exactly the same thing. Paul takes these disciples aside and he explains to them the way of God more perfectly. They're lacking something in their Christianity. So there is a second parallel. But Luke does not want us to assume that Apollos or the Twelve were unsaved. And when we looked at the story of uh, Apollos, I don't know, what was that, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that he was clearly saved. He knew God's grace. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He had been trained accurately in the way of the Lord. And I take that to be John the Baptist's training of him, pointing to the coming Messiah. And he followed that Messiah. Uh, he was fervent in spirit. He spoke. He taught accurately the things of the Lord. He had at least two works of God's grace in his life in verse 26, humility and boldness. He had a love for the brethren in verse 27. He helped those who had believed through grace. He was a worker of the Lord. So there is not a hint that he was not a genuine uh, believer. But right out of the chute in the next verse, Luke says, in finding some disciples, he puts these disciples in the same category as being true believers. Now, some people have tried valiantly to get around uh, the meaning of that phrase by saying, okay, well, yeah, they're disciples, but they're disciples of John or they're disciples of Apollos, but they're not disciples of uh, Jesus. And I've listed some of the scriptures that they would cite. Uh, there are scriptures in the Gospels, not in Acts, but there are scriptures that say, talk about disciples of John. But my question would be this. Wait a minute. What is the meaning of that? Uh, what would a disciple of John look like? All disciples of John were taught to be followers of the coming Messiah. What did it mean to be a disciple of Paul? Well, it did not mean that that person was not also a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant that, John, uh, that Paul was discipling that person in the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. So both John and Paul were simply tools in God's hands teaching people the way of the Lord. That's what they were uh, seeking to do. And to, so to say that a disciple of John is not a true believer is ludicrous. Subpoint A gives some scriptures that show that all disciples of John were taught to believe in and follow Jesus. Point B indicates that the gospel of Jesus did not start with the book of Acts, like some hyper-dispensationalists would have us uh, believe. Uh, here is the first words in the gospel of Mark. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he gives 11 verses talking about John's ministry, pointing to Jesus, making disciples of Jesus. Uh, what he is saying there is that the, the gospel of Jesus didn't start later. John's ministry was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And if you look at the messages of both men, you'll find that the messages were identical. Matthew 3, 2 summarizes John's message as, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 summarizes the message of Jesus as, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Identical messages, identical gospel. You see, any disciple in the New Testament, if he is being discipled properly, is going to follow the pattern that Paul set with his disciples. He said, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You know, any disciple that, uh, I, that I would have, a disciple of Phil, if he's not also a disciple of Jesus Christ, I've started a cult. Okay, that's basically the bottom line of it. To make disciples of John out to be non-Christians or non-believers just doesn't work. But I think more to the point is the way Luke himself uses the term disciples in the book of Acts. Uh, he's not trying to confuse us. He's communicating to us with that word disciples in verse 1 that they were true born-again believers. That's the way Luke uses the term. Now, I'm not going to go through all those references. I've put 27 examples in the book of Acts that you can study for yourselves, but just look down at verse 9 in our chapter here, and you'll see that uh, this is the way uh, Luke uses it. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So it's clear that the disciples are contrasted with those who did not believe. And you can see that all through Book of Acts. Acts 11.26, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Luke is defining his terms. A disciple is a believer. A disciple is a Christian. And uh, there is more proof. If you look at verse 2, you'll see Paul assumes that they were indeed believers. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he's speaking to them as believers. They don't deny that they were believers. They were. They just hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. What's this part of the equation here? And so when you take all of the evidence together, I think you can safely conclude that Luke wants us to think of these 12 men as being in the same category as Apollos. They're true believers and they've been discipled by John, but there are some things they have not yet learned or experienced. Now, with that as a background, I think we can go through and we can start looking at what this passage does not mean. Now, I have frequently done this uh, when there is a difficult passage I don't understand, uh, working through a controversial passage. Uh, it's kind of detective work. I will try to weed out the options that are most obvious and just narrow down, narrow down, narrow down until finally it's a little bit more workable when I look at, you know, fewer options that are there. So we're going to do a little bit of um, detective work here. I don't usually give uh, my detective work to, to people because it's a little bit boring, but this is such a controversial and such an important passage, I thought I would take you step by step through what I, I do. Now, I think we've already demonstrated point A. This passage is not teaching us how to get saved. We know that because they're already saved. Uh, Calvin and the early reformers had great proofs to demonstrate that, but that immediately rules out some rather strange interpretations of this passage. It rules out the idea that 
the only way that uh, we can be saved is if we speak in tongues, people who connect uh, the two there. Now, this has been discredited so many times that the numbers are dwindling, but I'm still shocked at how many people I run across who believe this. They get it from Mark chapter 16, verse 17. Let me read that for you. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now I have no idea why they pick tongues out and not handling snakes as a sign that you're saved. Maybe they got phobia of snakes, I don't know. But uh, he's not saying you've got to have one sign. He's just saying when you become a believer in the New Testament, you are ushered into the supernatural. You're ushered into kingdom living. And there's all kinds of supernatural ways that God's Spirit is going to be working through you. He's just giving some sampling. It's not an exhaustive list, nor should we use just one of those. But what these guys will do is they will say, well, what about Acts 19? Disciples believe in verse 4. They get baptized in verse 5. They speak in tongues in verse 6. Case closed. You know, in order to be saved, you've got to speak in tongues. I've already demonstrated the exegesis is incorrect because they were saved in verse 1. They speak in tongues much later in verse 6. Now, somewhat more common is the belief that baptism saves you and or regenerates you. In fact, there are some smaller denominations that go so far as to say you're not saved unless you've been baptized by their pastor with the right formula by immersion into their church. There aren't very many of those, but there are about three smaller denominations that have that. But I think all views of baptismal regeneration are ruled out by this passage. If verse 1 means that they are saved, it's not till much later that they are baptized. Case closed. Well, maybe not case closed because they'll come right back, some of these people, and they'll say, well, what's happening here is, yeah, they are true believers in verse 1, but because John the Baptist didn't use the right formula. He didn't baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The baptism didn't take. That's the language that they use. It didn't take. They didn't get regenerated and didn't get baptized with the Spirit. And so they aren't saved, even though they are genuine believers. But there are three things we can say about that. First of all, um, we already know from past passages in the book of Acts, you can't even believe savingly. You can't believe without being regenerated. Faith comes out of regeneration, not vice versa. And we've seen, we gave several scriptures when we were looking at Lydia, for example, whose heart the Lord opened, there's regeneration, so that she attended to the things spoken by Paul. There is faith. Secondly, uh, their interpretation doesn't even fit the order of events in this passage. Paul's laying on of hands in verse 6 is not the baptism. Verse 5 is the baptism. They get the spiritual gifts after laying on of hands in verse uh, 6. So if that receiving of the Spirit is their regeneration in verse, you would expect that that would have been right at the time of verse 5, not a separate uh, event. So that disproves baptismal regeneration. And in third, we've already seen, they really were saved in verse 1 before they were baptized. Now enough said on that. I had about three or four other things, and I said, man, I've got to ditch some of these. Um, but there are a lot of views. If you can believe, as I do, that these people really are uh, sa saved in verse 1, they're baptized later, it solves a lot of issues. <clears throat> then the baptism means it's something else than 
uh, a result of or the cause of salvation. Now, this has put some other people in a real pickle. It doesn't bother those of us who believe in rebaptism, but there are some Reformed people who absolutely refuse to believe in any rebaptism, and they are logically forced into one of two camps. One of two camps. First group has been convinced by the evidence that we've looked at under point A that uh, these people are definitely believers. They say there is no way you can avoid this conclusion. These would be the reformers, uh, early reformers. And as I mentioned earlier, they say that a baptism did not happen in chapter 19 because this is Paul speaking. And um, it was John the Baptist, not Paul, who baptized. Now, this is so convoluted an interpretation. Most people have abandoned it. Let me just give you three proofs that that's not true. First of all, it's not the most natural reading of either the English or the Greek. You read through it, it just doesn't make sense. You have to read and read and read and say, oh, okay, I can sort of see your point on that. But the second point is that the Greek pronoun they in verse 5 is obviously the same referent as the they in verse 6. I mean, it's the same in English too, but it's very clear in the Greek. Uh, that's a deadly argument against this view. Third, if verse 5 is John's baptism then verse 5 is a tautology of verse 4, which is something pretty hard for people to swallow. I can give you some other arguments as well, but I think I've convinced these people were believers, uh, yes, and they did get rebaptized. This is talking about a rebaptism, however uncomfortable it may make us feel. And if you've done much study in this, you know I'm already painting myself into a corner, okay? Because what are the options when you start narrowing these things down? So if this is true, these people were indeed baptized again, then I would suggest two things. First, the PCA's majority position is correct. Uh, those who grew up unbelievers in apostate denominations should be rebaptized. And Ephesians 4, 5 should not be used against the majority position of the PCA. Let me, let me read you that. This is one of the things that some Presbyterians throw against us. Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Charles Hodge uh, had the minority position in his um, denomination. It was about eight of them that agreed with him. But he said, um, there's only one baptism. You may not rebaptize, or you are violating this passage of one baptism. Well, what my response to that would be is, the baptism he's talking about there is an invisible baptism, just like the body is an invisible body. In fact, everything in verse, uh, those two verses is invisible. If you start inserting visible water into that, you get into just as much problems as we saw you get into if you put water into Romans chapter 6. You end up with baptismal regeneration. It's a really difficult, uh, difficult issue. So he's not talking about water baptism, spirit baptism. Now, I know this is tedious, but each of these points is essential to getting where we need to be. So this is a rebaptism. Second thing that my interpretation would rule out is an over-objectified view of baptism that we see in the Auburn Avenue um, theologians. Now, you know that um, there's been a lot of controversy about uh, you know, Doug Wilson and Schlissel and some of these other people. They insist not only that baptism may not be performed a second time, but that baptism objectively puts you into the covenant. It ushers you into salvation, into saving grace. 
And what they will say, like Doug Wilson has a debate where he goes to great lengths saying this, that um, the uh, Roman Catholics must be seen as brothers in Christ, heirs of grace, headed to heaven, even though they are errant brothers, they say. And I utterly reject that idea. They hang way, way, way too much upon baptism. For them, baptism ushers us into saving grace. And I think this is one of several passages that contradicts that view. Water baptism is a symbol. It is not a once-forever reality. Second, Paul treated them as believers before they're baptized. Luke treats them as believers before they are rebaptized. And so on a, uh, the totally objective view of the covenant, none of that would make sense. I think this is really a powerful passage against the Auburn Avenue theology. Very powerful. But they do have an objection. Those who vigorously oppose rebaptism of Roman Catholics and apostates want to drive a huge wedge between John's baptism and Christian baptism. They say they're totally different things. Uh, Roman Catholics say the same thing. Uh, the Council of Trent, which was a Roman Catholic council, said, If anyone saith that the baptism of John had the same force as the baptism of Christ, let him be anathema. They're sending you to hell if you believe what I'm teaching you here. So be careful. This is dangerous stuff. Uh, the Reformers disagreed with that. And the early church disagreed with the Romanists, and they agreed with the Reformers. Let me give you an example. Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 222 A.D., said, There is no difference between those whom John baptized in the Jordan and Peter in the Tiber which was many years later. He said no difference between the people who are baptized there and the people who are baptized later. Now, some of you may be lost in this debate and you're thinking, why do we have to wrestle through all of these types of issues here? Suffice it to say, Rome believed this is a critical issue, critical that we understand they believed that there is a total difference between John's baptism and uh, Christian baptism. They say a lot hangs on that distinction. The Reformers believed this is a critical issue and much hangs on the fact that John's baptism is not different from Christian baptism. It is an important subject. But if you look at point C in your outlines there, you'll notice I'm convinced this passage is not teaching that all those baptized by John got rebaptized. Some did, some did not. In fact, I think this is the only clear example we have of any disciples of John who got rebaptized. There may have been others, but I think this is the only clear example we can prove. Let's look at some of the evidence. Matthew 3.13 indicates that Jesus was baptized by John. It is clear to everyone that Jesus did not get rebaptized. Now, that didn't prove a lot, but it does connect John's baptism with the baptism of Christ, and the Reformers insisted on that. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm going to have to get you guys flipping pages so you can keep awake here. John chapter 1, and uh, let's begin reading at verse 35. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, ju we'll just stop there for a sec, and we'll come back to this. John is in effect saying, Hey, this is the person I've been talking about and discipling you to follow all of these years. This is the one that my baptism has been pointing to. So they naturally follow Jesus. He's making his disciples into followers of Jesus, not followers of himself, which, by the way, brings up a strange thing. This happened in Acts chapter 19. If he was so vigorous in teaching people to follow Jesus, 
how come these guys weren't looking for Jesus? How come they weren't connected uh, with the body of Christ? Anyway, verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So what we're seeing here is disciples of John becoming disciples of Jesus. And there are other disciples of John, not, not a lot while Christ was on earth, but other disciples of John becoming Christ's disciples. Now, if they had to be baptized again, like some of these advocates are saying, who baptized them? And people will say, well, Jesus could have baptized them. Well, turn with me to John chapter 4, where that is ruled out. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So in this passage, we're seeing that there were people from Israel who were being baptized to become disciples. To become a disciple means to study under someone to learn the ropes of the faith. If I baptized a new convert, it would be my responsibility to disciple this person, you know, to follow Christ. But notice verse 2. It says, Jesus did not baptize anyone. The reformers said, this is proof positive none of the 12 apostles was rebaptized. Now, they have other proofs for other things uh, that are not quite as strong, um, where they say that the 120 in the upper room were clearly not baptized, and the 500 were not, that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. But anyway, it's persuasive to me. The last reference I have is to Apollos in this chapter. No indication that he was rebaptized uh, in chapter 18. And so people like Calvin who focused on the unity of the baptism, they've tended to deny that any rebaptism occurred in chapter 19. People who have said, oh, all John's disciples got rebaptized, they tend to read baptism back into chapter 18, even though there's no indication it happened whatsoever. So even though this is not a rock-solid point, I think the evidence favors the fact that um, not all of John's disciples were rebaptized. In fact, this is the only clear evidence that we have against that. The fourth thing that I am convinced of is that John's baptism is not something totally different from Christian baptism. We've already hinted at this. It's different in that it looks forward to Christ. Ours looks backward to Christ. But in terms of its essential meaning, I agree with the Reformers completely. It's the same baptism and unless people are cut off from the community of faith they don't need to get rebaptized and by the way that hints at what i think was going on with the 12 disciples in acts 19 uh, they had not been uh, with the community of faith for 20 years and we'll give some evidence of why that uh, is the, uh, the the case it's one of several proofs in the bible of why i believe people should be rebaptized if they come from roman catholicism or some other apostate organization or if they've been out of the church for 20 years like these people let me repeat what tertullian said there is no difference between those whom john baptized in the jordan and peter in the tiber 
And uh, if you want to read more on this, uh, Turretin's three-volume set, volume three, pages 399 and following, has some great material. Um, it's even more boring than what I've been bringing here, but <laughs> he's got some great material. Now, people will look at verse 4, and, and here is one of the ways they drive a wedge between the two. They'll say, okay, John the Baptist's baptism is called a baptism of repentance. Christian baptism is called a baptism of faith. They are different. That's one of the arguments they have. They try to, I've heard Baptists say this all the time, you've got to see these two different. Baptism of repentance, baptism of faith. So they're driving a wedge between the two just like the Roman Catholics do, but it's a false contrast. For one thing, faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. Okay? What is, you can't have faith without repentance. Uh, repentance is turning from something Faith is turning to God. You can't turn to God unless you turn from something. So wherever you find one, you're going to find the other. Second, Acts 2.38 makes it crystal clear that Christian baptism is every bit as much a baptism of repentance as John's was. Let me read that for you. Acts 2.38. Peter said, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. It is an antinomian Christianity that takes repentance out of our vocabulary. Now, people try to do that, but you look in the, in the New Testament, repentance is everywhere. It is part and parcel of Christianity. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 3. We'll go ahead and read these. Uh, Matthew 3, and we're going to see John's message first of all. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now take a look at chapter 4, verse 17, where we see Christ's message. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an identical message. Nor is John the Baptist's message without good news and without faith. We already saw that his whole ministry was called the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what gospel means, good news. But flip back to Acts 19 and verse 4, and I think it is crystal clear in this passage. I don't know how people can make this distinction. Look at verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him is on Christ Jesus. It's not just a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of belief of faith. Uh, point two gives plenty of scripture to show that both John's and Christ's baptisms were from Christ. I'm not going to read those scriptures. Jesus said, John's baptism is from heaven. He did not, uh, he identified with it. He did not drive a wedge between uh, the two. Third, both baptisms pointed to the Holy Spirit. And let me just read you one example here. In fact, why don't you turn there? Acts 11, 15 through 18. And as I read this, I want you to notice three things. First of all, notice that Peter ties his baptism with John's baptism. Secondly, notice that Peter's baptism shows, you know, points to the spirit baptism, just like John's baptism points to spirit baptism. And then third, notice that he links repentance to baptism. So it's um, verses 15 through 18. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? 
And when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. I don't think you could get any clearer testimony of the fact both baptisms mean exactly the same thing. And if you're once convinced of this fact, suddenly numerous controversies in the 20th century become resolved. Fourth, both required faith in the Messiah. I'm not even going to read that. Uh, that's just the passage we read a couple minutes ago, verse 4. Fifth, both baptisms were a sign of separation from apostate Judaism, from the world, and being united with the body of believers. Uh, Matthew 3, 5 through 12. What's John doing out in the wilderness? He's outside of Israel. He's calling Jews to leave apostate Judaism symbolically to form a new Israel. What is uh, happening in Acts chapter 2? They're forming a new Israel. Let me, let me read Acts 2 for you, verses 40 to 42. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He's calling them to leave Judaism. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is the same thing we require of Roman Catholics. We tell them, come out of her and be separate. Get baptized and join the community of believers. Why is it that Romanists feel it's so essential to make a division between John's baptism and Christian baptism? If they didn't, there is no way that they could demonstrate that baptism saves. They know John the Baptist's baptism does not save. They've got to make a difference between the two. Why is it so imperative for Baptists that they separate between John's baptism and Christian baptism? If they didn't, they would not be able to maintain their belief that baptism excludes infants. If you study the literature of proselyte baptism, which is what John the Baptist had, you'll see that when there was profession of faith of the adults, the whole family was baptized. Okay, the males were circumcised, but the whole family uh, was baptized. But point by point, I hope you're seeing, they are essentially the same. The last point is that John was ushering people into the kingdom of heaven according to Matthew 11, verse 12. Now, it was in a very provisional fashion, but it's just like Christian baptism is ushering us into the kingdom. Matthew 11, 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Well, that's exactly the same, entering into the kingdom, as Acts 8.12. As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And so ultimately, spirit baptism is an initiatory rite that symbolizes the fact we need the spirit for kingdom living. Whether that happens at the time of regeneration or later, you don't even have to solve that, but we need the Spirit for kingdom uh, living. We need His empowerings. A couple of other things that this passage does not teach. It is not teaching a contradiction between Paul's baptisms and the baptisms of Matthew 28. Uh, even recently, I've been in debate with some oneness Pentecostals, some people call them Jesus-only Pentecostals, who deny the Trinity, and uh, they say Matthew 28 uh, must have been added to the Bible, the last few verses, must have been added to the Bible, you know, two or three centuries later. There's not a shred of evidence for this, but it's so Trinitarian, they have a hard time with it. So here's what Matthew 28:19 says. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They say, well, that's not part of the Bible. That's a total contradiction of Paul. Look at verse 5 here. Paul didn't baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He baptized in the name of Jesus. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so they insist, you have not been properly baptized unless the words that were said over you were, I baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus. What are we to say to that? Well, fortunately, we have a church document written before the fall of Jerusalem, um, probably written about 64 to 66 A.D. It's called the Didache, and it says in one place that the people are supposed to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and in another paragraph, it gives the exact formula of how we baptize in the name of the Lord, and, and Lord there is a reference to Jesus. Here is what they say. But concerning baptism, baptize in this way. Having first recited all these precepts, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. Pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the point. They didn't see any contradiction in very close proximity saying, oh yeah, you've got to baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then saying, oh yeah, you've got to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is there no contradiction? Because all three persons have the same name. It's Jehovah, right? Jesus is Jehovah. In fact, his name means Jehovah saves. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the way, are not names. They are titles. What's their name? It's a name singular. Their name is Jehovah. As um, Zechariah 14.9 says, the Lord is one and his name one. So when verse 5 says they're baptizing the name of the Lord Jesus, by the way, the word Lord, kurios, is what's frequently the translation of the name Jehovah in the Old Testament. Uh, in effect, he's saying, yeah, yeah, you've got to baptize him in the name of Jehovah Jesus, <laughs> the Lord Jesus. Even his name means Jehovah. So there is absolutely no contradiction. Now, let me address one last thing that this passage is not teaching. You can see so far, this has really been a twisted and abused passage that's screaming out in pain. Uh, this uh, particular misunderstanding, I think, is understandable based on the translation in the New King James. But chapter 19, verse 2 so they said to him, we have not so much, oh yeah, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So some people say that these disciples didn't know there was such a thing as the third person of the Trinity. They were non-Trinitarian. But most commentaries say that this translation is extremely unlikely. There's two different ways you could translate it. It's extremely unlikely for two reasons. It's unlikely that any disciples of John the Baptist would not have heard about the Holy Spirit. He spoke about the Holy Spirit. In fact, his baptism said was pointing forward to the one who would baptize with the Spirit. It's part and parcel of his, uh, the way he taught. But secondly, it is inconceivable to me that a Jew of the first century would be able to read through or hear read in church and synagogues uh, for very long without knowing that there is a Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't even read the first chapter of Genesis without seeing the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So from Genesis through to the last book of the Old Testament, the Spirit uh, was there. Well, there is a solution. And what's going on here is that the Old Testament prophesied that there would be a historical coming of the Spirit. And once the Spirit historically came, that's Pentecost, Believers, ordinary citizens, would have 
power that very few in the Old Testament had. They would have kingdom power very few had before. Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, Zechariah 12. And here is the solution. Most commentaries say, here is the way you should translate Acts 19.2. And I've put that in your, your bulletin. We did not even hear if the Holy Spirit was come. So he knew John had prophesied that he was coming. That was the whole point of his baptism, but they hadn't heard of the coming of the Spirit. You mean he's here? The Holy Spirit is already right here? And they hadn't heard that they had been fulfilled. So they were living a substandard Christianity. Now with all that as a background, this is the introduction to the sermon. (laughs) No, we're going to race through the rest. With all that as a background... I think you can see why this really is an important passage. Very helpful. In fact, I've come to love this section now that I've understood it. Uh, Very quickly, let's apply each verse um, uh, with applications we haven't already made. Verse 1 corrects the view that there can be no salvation outside the church. This has been very common in some circles. Now, our confession says ordinarily there is not salvation outside the church, but that ordinarily is a a pretty significant word. Uh, This passage contradicts the idea that there can't be salvation because these people have been outside the visible church for 20 years, and we're going to run across people who are in exactly that kind of a situation. Even though they had a substandard Christianity, we can seek their good. We can minister to them. Rebaptizing them indicates it's a serious thing. Uh, to be cut off from the the covenant community. In fact, what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from the protective canopy of the covenant. In effect, you've excommunicated yourself, but can they be saved? Yeah, yeah, they can be saved. Uh, No problem. Second, when you're involved in missions, you will see this kind of thing happening all the time, sometimes with errors that are worse than what they had in verse 2. We call this nativistic movements. Uh, Let me just give you a a couple of examples of nativistic movements. And I've told you this first story. Out in India, there was this guy that picked up a Bible. He started reading it, became a Christian. He got really excited. So he made it his ministry to read to people. He would read to his relatives. They'd get saved. He'd read to his neighbors. They'd get saved. And he had nothing but reading assemblies. Every night of the week, uh, in some of these assemblies, over a 1,000 people in them, and he had never met another Christian. Now, did they have errors? Yeah, they had all kinds of weird errors because this was just a nativistic movement. But as soon as Christian leaders got in contact and they started instructing and teaching, these people were very receptive and those errors were were corrected. So God sometimes works outside the normal paths of the church and it shouldn't surprise us. Here's another story. pastor in Venezuela, uh, uh, just a few years ago, wasn't very long, uh, he was traveling through the jungles trying to spot new areas that uh, needed to be evangelized. He stumbled upon an entire village of Christians. And he asked them, how did you become Christians? Because he knew no missionary had been there before. And apparently one of the young men had gone to a, a remote uh, uh, marketplace to trade goods and he had been handed a Bible. He knew how to read. When he went back to his village, he started reading this every person in the village had become a Christian. Now, here's the interesting part. He said the only errors these guys had picked up in their Christianity was uh, they they worshipped on Saturday rather than Sunday, which wasn't a serious error. Uh, They uh, abstained from pork. 
and uh, they'd killed all their dogs because Philippians 3, 2 says, beware of dogs. <laughs> so uh, they were able to instruct these guys and they got their dogs, you know, some dogs back again. But <coughs> Now, some of the nativistic movements have been bizarre. I mean, there have been some real heresies that have developed. In fact, uh, one of the movements where a guy just spontaneously, you know, found some literature and uh, he, the pastor actually ended up sacrificing his son, thinking that's what Abraham did, that's what we're supposed to, to do. But one of the things that you'll notice about these nativistic movements, when they come in contact with people who teach the scriptures, they are so open to God's word, they will believe it. They will change very quickly. And I think, oh, that Americans were as quick to submit to the scriptures, as quick to change their minds. Oh, that we had the humility of Apollos. And that we had the humility, you know, of these 12 disciples who said, oh, if it's in the Word, I'll do it. I want to please God. That, that, that's a wonderful thing. But another reason I picked this up is because we're Presbyterians, and everything we Presbyterians do has got to be neat and tidy and all in place, right? You know, if you're, you can't be a pastor in the Presbyterian church unless you've got a bachelor degree and a master of divinity and you've got Hebrew and Greek. Let me tell you something. There's a reason why Presbyterians don't prosper and... Dalits and pygmies in Africa and other places like that is they can't train these guys fast enough. And the point is, the Scripture wants us to not be imposing all kinds of legalistic standards. We've got to have the flexibility to be responsive to the Spirit's movements. It's one of the reasons I like this, this new denomination we're looking at. Much, more, much less legalistic, much more responsive in some of, uh, of these ways. Scripture is much more flexible than we tend to be. Now, the third thing that this passage corrects is the idea that the baptism of the Spirit is received by works rather than by faith. And I tell you, this has put so many people into bondage where they're trying and they're trying and they're trying to get this experience that other people have gotten. And uh, I'll give you some quotes that will show you the problem. Ray Hughes says, Faith alone is not sufficient. The temple or body must be prepared for the receptions of the Spirit. And he talks about all these ways we prepare ourselves to be holy enough for the Spirit to come in. He says, you know, the Spirit won't come into a dirty cup, so we've got to clean the cup. And my question is, how do you clean the cup without the power of the Spirit? You can't, you know. And so there's this works of the flesh trying to get the Spirit. Riggs says that the conditions of receiving the Spirit of regeneration, obedience, prayer, and then faith. My question is, if that was true, how come the Corinthians, who were so carnal, they were baptized in the Spirit, they had spiritual gifts. <laughs> you know, they didn't have these conditions. And it's not just Pentecostals who have this error. Ockinga, an advocate of the higher life movement, said, there are five elements in this formula by which we may appropriate Pentecost. They are confession, consecration, prayer, faith, and obedience. You look at this passage, you will look in vain for those five steps. In verse 2, he simply says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul expects that faith in Christ is going to be a faith that's sufficient to receive the Holy Spirit. And the fact they had not been baptized, you know, is an oddity. Let me read you Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He's saying the same faith that receives salvation is a faith that receives the Spirit. The same faith that starts our Christianity is a faith that continues our Christianity. And yes, there are works that the Spirit produces within us, but it's faith that receives from the Father's throne. There is no earning of the Spirit. There is no making of ourselves worthy. It is by faith. The fourth thing this passage corrects is the idea that the baptism of the Spirit is always a second work of grace. Some people promote a two-stage Christianity. There's plebeians like, like you, you know, who just haven't made it. And then there's people like me who've gotten to the second level of Christianity. You know, we, we are in the higher life. We're living above known sin uh, or sometimes above sin, period. Now, I will admit that this passage does indicate for these people this was a second work of grace. I think that's clear. But it's not the norm, as can be seen by Paul's comments in verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Notice those words, when you believed. That's God's ordinary norm for when this happens. Were there exceptions in the book of Acts? Yes, it's a transitional book. You look at Acts chapter 2, and he's, um, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, actually start there. He's promising apostles who've been saved for a long time, shortly you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's not saving them. I look in Acts 2. It's not just them who get saved. There's 120 people who are already Christians for quite some time who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, you see the same thing. This passage, you see exactly the same thing. But in Acts 2, 38 through 39, Peter gives what should be the norm. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So that's indicating this is the norm. People who are believers, those who've been called, will receive the Spirit. Now, to be balanced, I think we can't be formulaic about this. We reformed people like to pigeonhole everything and just say, if you're converted, automatically, guaranteed, you've been baptized by the Spirit. Um, now, I think probably that's true. Acts is a transitional book, and so maybe after Acts is finished, that's the way God always uh, works. But because there are several exceptions in the book, because baptism of the Spirit did not save them, I think we've got to be very, very careful what we say. If it distresses you that God cannot be pigeonholed, get used to it. <laughs> okay? You can't put God in a box and say, oh, God can't work that way. My theology book says he can't. Okay? Uh, be very, very careful. Unless God in His Word has clearly said, I am never going to do such and such, we've got to be very careful we don't put Him into a box. Um, so the question comes, if the baptism of the Spirit didn't save these people, what did it accomplish? Well, 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 indicates one of the things it accomplishes is it gives people spiritual gifts. Some people are given the gift of hospitality, others of service, others of helps, teaching, tongues. And God's ordinary pattern is that the moment they believe, they're given a set of gifts to serve one another in love. That's what He gives to them. Now, God can add later uh, gifts later on, but He usually starts with at least some. But the baptism of the Spirit ushers us into the realm of the supernatural for kingdom living. Usually at the time we're born into the kingdom, but sometimes, who knows, maybe it's later. Now, let me give you a secret if you're concerned about this. You just feel, I've got to know whether there still is a possibility people have to be baptized afterwards or not. Here's the secret. 
if you're seeking to be infilled by the Spirit, it really doesn't matter. Because when you're baptized, you're also filled uh, with the Spirit. And uh, you can see that in, in um, Acts chapter 2 and in other places. But verse 2 indicates this is what we should usually expect. It happens at conversion. Verse 6 says, don't put God in a box. But Ephesians says, keep seeking the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit continually every single day. Point F, this passage corrects those who bail out on the church once the leader is gone. And I believe Paul is hitting one of the nails straight on the head when he addresses that in verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. He was saying, John, because his ministry was so good, was not pointing to himself. Hey, it's all about me. No, it's all about Jesus. He was pointing beyond himself. And what the weird thing about it is here is these people are still following John 20 years after he's dead. They're still following John when his ministry is finished. They claim to be following John when John really was saying, if you're following me, you're going to follow Jesus. So there was something a little bit out of kilter uh, that was going on here. For 20 years, they've neglected the church. Now, that didn't make them unsaved, but it did make them outside the kingdom for 20 years, and that's why they needed to be rebaptized. Why didn't Apollos get rebaptized? Well, it's because he'd been preaching Christ. He hadn't been preaching John. He'd been associating with the body of believers. He only needed additional instruction. In contrast, these disciples apparently lacked the power and the spirit, the love of the brethren, and other things that made Apollos so powerful. They needed to be incorporated into the church, baptized into the body. And in the same way, it's my view that any who have spent years in an apostate denomination, such as Rome or the PCUSA or Methodist Church, should ordinarily get rebaptized unless it was a believing local church. The reason is those denominations have been excommunicated. They've been cut off from the kingdom. Once they are apostate, they are in the same status as Israel where where John the Baptist was saying, and Jesus too, come out of her, my people. Leave her. Join the new community of believers. And that's, uh, I should tell you, th this is not the universal opinion of Reformed people. And so, you know, you can ignore what I'm saying here unless you think it's scriptural. Then you shouldn't ignore it. Uh, but it is the majority position in the PCA. So uh, if you disagree, it's fine. I won't insist on it. But I do want to end with one more application. This passage calls Christians to live in the realm of the supernatural. In verses 2 through 3, Paul recognizes there is something that is just not quite right about these disciples. He can, he can sense they don't have the Spirit uh, in their life. Verse 6, when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. It was almost like a new Pentecost here. Now, previously, I think we have clearly laid out that the gift of prophecy ceased in 70 A.D., and we have all of the prophecies that we need in the New Testament, but the supernatural has not ceased. We still need God's Holy Spirit to give us power to be able to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord willing, we're going to look at some of the miracles, the supernatural living of Paul later on in this chapter, but this verse is one of many that indicates we need the Spirit of God if we're going to live adequately uh, in the kingdom. If your life is a constant series of failures... It lacks power, it lacks joy, 
It's a substandard Christianity. What I encourage you to do is look to Jesus for a fresh infilling of His Spirit. We don't need to solve the question of whether you've been baptized or not. You can just put that out of your head. I'm going to assume that you've been baptized, okay? But the point is, in Acts chapter 2, when they were baptized, they were filled. If you get filled, you've been baptized, whether it's before or now, okay? In Acts 2, they're baptized, they're filled with the Spirit, and they keep getting filled all the way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. In response to intense prayer for power and boldness, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They are filled again and again in the book of Acts. And that is my prayer for you, a fresh infilling every day that will give you supernatural power to love your wife and your husband and your children with Christ's love, to love them sacrificially, patiently, and to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, to return blessing for cursing, to return good things for the evil things. We can't do that in our own flesh. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've included... A prayer for filling in your outlines, every sentence of that prayer is from Scripture. And I would urge you to pray that prayer. Pray it every day. And as you do so, may you experience His joy and His empowering for kingdom living. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word, even the tough passages that you lay before us. Uh, We do not want to twist the Scriptures or put you into a box. We just want to submit to you and your sovereign uh, freedom. Your free will, Father, is what we uh, desire to lift up, not our own free will. And so we say, Lord, have your way in our lives. Have your way in our lives. And I pray that you would indeed fill us full to overflowing. You have said that those who simply by faith drink of the Lord Jesus, believe of him out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that is our desire that each and every one of us would not only be satisfied, with the waters of heaven, but that we would bring healing and satisfaction and encouragement and love to those that we minister as well. Help us to live in the realm of the supernatural. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.